Shabbat Shalom. Let's open up in prayer, shall we? Father, please help and bless us this day. Let your spirit and your shalom abide on us in our speaking and in our listening, in our teaching and in our learning, in our feasting and in our fasting and in our, in our work and in our rest. Please help and bless us and be here among us. Attend here today with us, Father, and be here on this beam with me. And please help and bless us all. In the name of Messiah Yeshua, in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. <laughs> So the other week, uh, Rabbi Ron Aronson, he took off his tallit before speaking, and I just thought that was such a good idea to do that. Oh, and I, this, these things are, they're holy accoutrements. They just like to sometimes, uh, you know, flee from your body sometimes. <laughs> yeah, but I think between the tallit and between the microphone, that's like uh, both of them ganging up on me. It's a fight I might not win, so... Can you all hear me okay with the microphone? A little bit. Okay, like this. Like that. Can you hear me now? Okay. I'm going to hold like this. Thank you. Our parsha this week is Parsha Devarim. Parsha Devarim, Deuteronomy 1 through 3. It's, and it's uh, in this parsha, Mo, Moses, he's addressing Israel as it, as it is about to possess the promised land. And also this day, it is the eve of Tisha B'Av. Tishbav commemorates a day when Israel was about to be dispossessed from the land. It commemorates the destruction of the temple twice, both the first and second temples, on the same day on the Jewish calendar, about 650 years apart. And that day is exactly 50 days before Rosh Hashanah. And that's no coincidence. It's evidence of divine influence over Israel's history and over world history. And... Whether Israel, though, is coming or going, whether we're contemplating Israel about to enter the Promised Land or Israel about to be exiled into Babylon, we have a situation where Israel is not in the land. In fact, Israel has spent most of its history with most of its people outside of the land. Well, why? I mean, if God is God and if Israel is his chosen people, then why haven't the children of Israel been established by the God of Israel yet in the land of Israel. Well, as we'll discuss this morning, this exile that we're going to be considering, it's not just a geographical exile, but it represents a state of spiritual exile that, is, that we experience in this current world. In this exile, it's not just an exile of the people of Israel, but it's a condition of exile that's shared by all of us who follow the Lord in the current world. And in considering Parashat Devarim and the day of Tishbav, we are considering two points, only two. You get a trained professional up here, I'll give you three points. I got two points. Uh, two points. That first, that we ourselves are in exile and are in the wilderness right now. But point number two, that is an exile that will soon be coming to an end. That we ourselves are in exile and in the wilderness, but is an exile which will soon be coming to an end. I have Parsha Devarim here. And in, in, in this Parsha, in these first three chapters of Deuteronomy, you have Moses, he's addressing the children of Israel, and he's recounting the events after the Exodus, after they received the commandments at Sinai. 
that they came to Kadesh Barnea, and before entering the land, they sent spies into the land who reported it populated with this giant race of men who lived in these huge fortified cities. And this caused Israel to become afraid, and uh, they refused to enter the promised land as, as the Lord ordered them. And the Lord punished Israel by making them sojourn in the wilderness for 40 years. But as that 40-year period was ending, and as Moses recounts in these chapters here, they began to have a string of large military victories over some very powerful people, over some very powerful potentates in the region. In particular, Sahon, king of Heshbon, and Og, king of Bashan. And now, as Moses is speaking to them, they are about to finally cross into the Jordan River, into the Promised Land. So, why is this important to us here today? What do we have to learn here from this? Well, let's fast forward, if you will, uh, into, the, into the apostolic writings to 1 Corinthians 10, to what Rav Shaul, the Apostle Paul, what he had to say about these events. And he wrote this to the Corinthians. He says, For I do not want you to be ignorant, brothers and sisters, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. They were all immersed in the Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they were drinking from a spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Messiah. Nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them, for they were struck down in the desert. Now these things happened as examples for us. So we wouldn't crave evil things just as they did. Do not be idolaters of some, as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Let's not commit sexual immorality as some of them did. And in one day, 23,000 fell. And let's not test the Lord as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents. And let's not grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroying angel. Now these things happened to them as an example. And it is written down as a warning to us on whom the ends of the ages have come. So what Paul is saying here is that what Israel experienced in the wilderness thousands of years ago, thousands of miles away, that it applies here and now to our situation, that we're being invited by Paul here to make an analogy between Israel's sojourn through the wilderness and our sojourn, so to speak, through this world. So what analogies can we make and what parallels can we draw? What lessons can we learn here from this? Well, we see that Israel, it was rescued out of Pharaoh's Egyptian kingdom by, the Mo by Moses and by the Lord. In the same way, in like manner, we have been rescued out of this fallen, demonically controlled world by Yeshua through the new birth. That Israel, it passed through the Red Sea while we received mikvah, immersion, baptism, and by, because of the repentance of our sins. Israel in the wilderness, they receive water from the rock and manna from heaven. In the same way, we receive living water which Yeshua gives, and, the, and his word which feeds and sustains us. Israel, they receive the cloud by day, and fire by night, and the Shekinah of the Lord, his presence, it dwelt on their tabernacle. In the same way, we have received the Holy Spirit which protects us, which illuminates our path. And we have God's presence dwelling among us in our camps, in, in both this synagogue and in the many churches and congregations throughout the world who, uh, who are faithful to Yeshua. And so all this great stuff has happened to you and to me. We've been rescued out of Egypt. 
We've gone through the Red Sea. We've eaten the manna from heaven and drunk water from the rock. We've seen the cloud by day and the fire by night. We've seen the presence of Adonai on Sinai and on our tabernacle. And so now we can enter the promised land, right? Not exactly. That generation of people, uh, that, that they couldn't enter the promised land. That they, these Israel, these, these slaves out of Egypt, constituted as such. They didn't have the required trust in Adonai. They didn't have the discipline to obey him. They didn't have the strength and the courage to fight the giants. And they weren't able to enter the promised land. Instead, they lived in the wilderness, and the older generation, it died in the wilderness. Only the next generation was able to enter into the promised land. Well, this kind of stinks. <laughs> I mean, if we're drawing parallels between us and, and Israel in the wilderness, well, what does that mean for us then in our condition? Well, what it means, folks, is this, that we are in exile from the promised land that Adonai has promised for, for, for us, that uh, the age to come, Yalom Haba, that we are in wilderness in this present world, that we've been made by God to live in it, to sojourn in it, and if Yeshua tarries in his coming, we will have to die in it. But there is a but, there is good news here. That just as the new generation was able to enter the promised land, we, when we are regenerated at the Lord's coming, at the resurrection of those who've been faithful to him, then we will be able to enter the promised land, the future kingdom which Yeshua will establish on this earth. Let's also take a look here at the first epistle of the Apostle Kepha, 1 Peter. And he begins his epistle by saying this, 1 Peter 1, he writes, Peter, an emissary of Messiah Yeshua, to the sojourners of the diaspora, and that's the literal Greek word he used, diasporas, in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, set apart by the Ruach for obedience and for sprinkling with the blood of Yeshua the Messiah, may grace and shalom be multiplied on you. He goes on and he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Yeshua the Messiah. In his great mercy, he caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Messiah Yeshua from the dead. An incorruptible, undefiled, and unfading inheritance has been reserved in heaven for you. By trusting, you are being protected by God's power for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. You rejoice in this greatly even though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been distressed by various trials. These trials are so that the true metal of your faith, far more valuable than gold, which perishes though refined by fire, may come to light in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Messiah Yeshua. And later on, in the, later in this epistle, chapter 2, verses 11 and 12, he writes this, Loved ones, I urge you as strangers and sojourners, strangers and sojourners, to keep away from the fleshly cravings that war against the soul. Keep your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that while they speak against you as evildoers, they may, from noticing your good deeds, glorify God in the day of visitation. So you have Peter here, and he's literally writing to a diaspora. He's writing to a diaspora of people. And we know from other parts of the apostolic writings, from Galatians 2 and 8, that Peter had been primarily entrusted to preach the gospel to Jewish people. Paul was sent to the Gentiles, Peter to the Jews. And we know from Acts, 9, uh, Acts 11, 19, that uh, 
right around the time of the martyrdom of Stephen, that there had been this big um, scattering and diaspora, kind of the same Greek root word was used, of, of Jewish believers in Yeshua who were living in Judea, and they were scattered northward. They were uh, living in exile in, in what's now present-day Lebanon, Syria, Cy Cyprus, and Turkey, that area, that, uh, that area of the world uh, that Peter was talking to. And I would argue, uh, just to wax mystical here for a minute, that that diaspora of Jewish believers in Yeshua from, from Judea, that that foresha foreshadowed the diaspora of all Jews from the land, that they were sort of a firstfruits and, a, and a, har a prophetic harbinger of what was to come. And so what we read here, we can surmise it's written to, to, uh, to Jewish believers, maybe even primarily the Jewish believers, so the audience probably definitely included Gentile believers, and it's definitely applicable to, to really a Jew or Gentile believer. But what Peter is saying to them, this, these people who had, to, who had to get out of Judea, who were, who were scattered from there, he's saying this to them, that yes, you've been born again. Yes, you have an inheritance in heaven. Yes, you have salvation. But it is a salvation that the totality of which is going to be fully revealed in the last time. That, but thou in the present, that you have trials, and you're being distressed by these trials, admittedly. But these are trials that are going to refine your faith, and they're going to lead to praise and glory at the final revela uh, revelation of Messiah Yeshua. And he uses two specific words to, to describe their condition, our condition, really. He calls, Peter calls them, he calls us strangers and sojourners. Strangers and sojourners. And these these are two specific words, and they're a translation of two specific Hebrew words uh, that are used throughout the Tanakh. The, the terms ger and toshav, ger and toshav, if you're familiar with those, they're, uh, uh, they have a very specific use. Uh, Abraham described himself as a ger and, and toshav in the land. That they were used in uh, Leviticus, described uh, the foreign resident aliens who, uh, and, the, and the rights and the obligations that they had. Kind of the, uh, and uh, later in Tanakh, the, these words were used to describe the, uh, Israel's condition in Babylonian exile, a stranger and sojourner. So what Peter is saying here, in other words, is that we're to conduct ourselves in this world as a sort of transitory foreign people in this present world. And so it's okay. It's okay if you do not have wealth or status in this world. Your wealth and status is in the age to come. It is not in this land. It is to a land to where you are traveling. It's okay if you feel out of place in this culture, in this strange culture with its values, that your cultures, your values, your value system are those of another country, of Yeshua's kingdom, which you will establish on the earth at the end of the age. Now let me ask you all this. Let me ask you all this. What is the most common theological mistake that is made by Yeshua believers? What is the most common theological mistake? And when I say Yeshua believers, I mean really regardless of the denomination, regardless of the parts of the world where they are living, uh, re regardless of their background or their, or their culture. And even it's been historically made. So throughout the, se the centuries, it's a very common theological mistake. The most common theological mistake it uh, is what theologians call, and this is a special term, they, called having an overrealized eschatology. An overrealized eschatology. 
What in the world does that mean? Okay. <laughs> in, in plain words, an over-realized eschatology, it means that you and I as a believer, and this is admittedly a mistake I, uh, I, I have made in the past in my own walk with, with the Lord, that we mistakenly start thinking that we're further along in God's plan for salvation than we actually are. They're like, hey, Fasso, but there's a salvation you have now, but there's a salvation to be revealed. That like Moses said to Israel in the wilderness, that Hashem, he is sustaining you in the wilderness, but he's leading you and he's going to give you a promised land. The big mistake that believers make is when they think that they're already in the promised land, so to speak, when they're still in the wilderness, that they, they think that they have or that they should have the full totality of the blessing and the holiness that's, that, that's going to come in the age to come, but they can have it in this present wilderness exile that is this fallen world. And it leads to a lot of dysfunctional thinking among Yeshua believers. That many times it can lead to an overly grandiose thinking among Yeshua believers. That they start thinking that they should have super abundant wealth and prosperity and answers their prayers. That they think they should have grand healing or miracles or prophetic powers in their life all the time. Or that they should have huge spiritual power in their, in their present life. And, the, and the, you get these preachers and these teachers on TV and they wear these very fancy suits and they sell these books with their faces plastered on them, and they, they, they peddle this overly grandiose vision of Yeshua belief that you can, just, you can have everything right now, and, and, and just it answers all your prayers if you just believe enough. And they do this, and they do this at the expense of, of ha many times of having sound doctrine and, 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 and rightly dividing the Word of God many times. Now, there are blessings from Hashem that a believer can have in this world, but there are a certain kind of blessings. That you had Moses, he said to Israel in Deuteronomy 2, verses 6 through 7, and he's talking about the relation to the Edomites. He says this, You are to buy food from them for money so that you may eat, and you are also to buy water from them for money so that you may drink. For Adonai your God has blessed you in all the work of your hand. He has known your wanderings through this great wilderness. These 40 years Adonai our God has been with you. You have lacked nothing. So, Israel, they had money in the wilderness, but Israel was still in the wilderness. He blessed the work of their hand in their wanderings, but Israel was still wandering. And they lacked nothing. And really, we lack nothing. We, by the very two facts, we are Americans and we are living in the 21st century. Those two facts alone basically make us some of the the richest, most prosperous people who have ever lived in human civilization, just by those two facts alone, that we don't lack anything, we don't lack any essentials, but we're still not in the promised land. America, this country is not the promised land. No country out there right now is the promised land. The promised land is, is the, the kingdom which Yeshua will establish on this earth. That even if we are blessed in the wilderness right now, the wilderness is still inherently a place of lack. That even if we have healing in the wilderness, the wilderness, this, this present world is still inherently a place of death. And, and you can have health and healing. And you can, you, I mean, you can pray for the health and healing and blessing. And, and many times can and should get it. But you're still subject to the natural course of this world. You're still subject to natural health ailments, which will lead to your corporeal death. That true, final, complete, total healing 
and blessing and abundance. And that's something that's going to happen at the resurrection when Yeshua establishes his kingdom. Another problem with having an over-realized eschatology, that another problem it causes is that along with your overly grandiose thinking, it can almost, it can, I mean, it can also lead to overly negative thinking. You start thinking, well, if Yeshua has come, I mean, if I'm born again, spirit-filled, have all these blessings, then why is the world still such a lousy place? Why is there trouble in my community or in my household? Why am I still struggling with sin and with problems? And people get overly critical of, uh, they get over critical of other believers when they're not perfect. They get overly critical of themselves. And they, get, and they get angry with God. And sometimes they even lose faith in God. And part of the reason why this happens is because believers aren't being correctly educated and discipled in the Word of God. They're, they're getting smiley, happy, fluffy preaching and teaching out there that's <clears throat> instead of getting real discipleship for a life in the wilderness. But I would argue that once you correctly understand that you're in the wilderness and you understand how God's moving in this present world and, and, and why everything isn't perfect, that it ends up being something that brings comfort. I like what, what G.K. Chesterton said. He's one of my favorite uh, Christian writers. He says this, he wrote this, that uh, about his conversion experience. He came to faith later in life, and he wrote this, the modern philosopher told me again and again that I was in the right place, and I had still felt depressed, even in acquiescence. But I had heard that I was in the wrong place, and my soul sang for joy, like a bird in spring. That once the believer understands that salvation and redemption, that they're not just something that have happened, but there's something that are being worked out in the present. That there's something that are going to be consummated in the future. Then we're in a position to rejoice and we can have hope in our present trials. Like what Paul said in 2 Corinthians 12, that for Messiah's sake, I delight in weakness and insults and distresses and persecutions and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. That we can get to the point where even when we're having trials and trouble, we, we can still rejoice like Paul did. But point number two, we can also rejoice in this, that our wilderness exile is not for much longer. Now, what's interesting about Israel's wilderness period uh, in the Torah is, is this, that for this majority of time in their wanderings, uh, between their failure at Kadesh Barnea and between when they started to, to fight the Canaanites, you had this 38-year period. Uh, and there's this 38-year period, there's remarkably little narrative or information about what was going on during those 38 years. You get maybe six chapters in the book of Numbers, and that's about it. And there was this 38-year period or so where things were kind of in a standstill, a, a stasis. They were in a new normal that everyone just got used to. The, the Israelites, well, they were wandering in the desert. That's what Israelites do. Israelites wander in the desert. That's just how the world works. That's just how everything goes. The Canaanites, the Amorites, these, these, uh, in these huge tribes that were settled and established in the land of Canaan, they lived where they were, very powerfully and comfortably. That's just how the world was. They were established there. That's just how things are. But then, very, all of a sudden, very suddenly, very quickly, things got very strange. Things happened very quickly. These wandering Israelites who were wandering outside in the wilderness, they weren't wandering outside anymore. They were starting to encroach into Canaanite lands. 
and uh, these great Canaanite kingdoms, these great Canaanite uh, potentates, Sahon king of Heshbon and Og king of Bashan, they were very suddenly uh, and very unexpectedly defeated in battle by the Israelites. That Og king of Bashan, for one, that he was said to be a giant, and he was said to be a leader of a race of giants, but he was, but he was defeated in battle by the, uh, by the Israelites. By the same, they defeated the same giants that they were afraid of 40 years ago. And he had Balaam. He had this very powerful uh, spiritual diviner with, uh, with a very spiritually powerful person. He was sent out to curse the Israelites, but he couldn't curse them. He couldn't help but bless them instead. So he had these powerful people, these powerful kingdoms, these powerful spiritual forces that had been established in the area as long as anyone could remember, that they were being very suddenly and being very rapidly disrupted that the way things had always been weren't that way anymore. And that, that is what's happening in this present day to the Jewish people and in the world around them. The Jews? Well, for years it was taken for granted by the world that, that the Jews were just going to wander the earth outside of the Promised Land until the end of time because of their rejection of Yeshua. That's what Augustine wrote. That's what uh, the great uh, church theologians and fathers, they've written about the Jewish people. Well, not anymore. They're starting to come back to the land. They're emigrating back. That more Jews live in Israel than, than, than live in any other single country. Then Europe, in America, in the West. Well, for two millennia, the West had been synonymous with Christendom. That if you lived in the West, you believed in Jesus. That's just how the world worked. That's just how things were. Well, not anymore. These last two centuries, and especially this, this, even in this last generation, maybe in these last few decades, that we're starting, uh, the West is becoming rapidly irreligious. You know, what belief does remain is becoming rapidly apostate and unbiblical, that you're seeing out there uh, beliefs and practices being accepted that uh, years ago, generations ago, they would have been considered fundamental doctrinal errors, but they're becoming now normative in very large uh, uh, denominations worldwide. And we recall what, what, what Paul wrote in Thessalonians 2 and 3, that he said, let no man in any way deceive you, for the day will not come unless the apostasy comes first, and then the man of lawlessness is revealed, the one destined to be destroyed. I mean, there are two huge signs in the world that Yeshua is coming as soon. There are two huge signs that we have. Number one is that the Jewish people repatriating Israel after thousands of years outside the land. And number two, unfortunately, is this mass apostasy that we're seeing out there among traditional Yeshua believers, the, the, the peoples who had always traditionally believed in him, this, this apostasy that Paul wrote about. These two huge signs that are going on, very, which is a radical change for how the world has been arranged for most of history. And also about the Jewish people. What's always been said about the Jewish people? Well, Jewish people don't believe in Jesus. That's just the way it is. Almost by definition, a Jew is somebody who just doesn't believe in Jesus. Well, not anymore. They're now beginning to start believing in, in, in Yeshua here and in elsewhere in increasing numbers. I think I read a news article this week that it was estimated about maybe 20,000 in Israel uh, Yeshua believers, that more Jews have accepted Yeshua in this last generation than maybe the last 1,800 years preceding it, that things are happening, 
that things are getting weird out there. Things are very suddenly and rapidly starting to change and shift. And it's because our exile is soon coming to an end. And while we are waiting for that exile to end, in the meantime, we do what Peter, we do what Paul taught us. We avoid idolatry, we avoid sin, we avoid grumbling and evil talk. We do our best to rejoice in the trials that life throws at us. Kepha, Peter, he also, uh, he also wrote this in his, in his second epistle, uh, chapter 3, 11 and 12. He writes this, that since all things are to be destroyed in this way, and he's speaking of this present world, what kind of people should you be? Live your lives in holiness and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God. <laughs> it's remarkable what Peter is saying here, that he's saying that you and I, you here today, sitting here, that you, in, in some mysterious way, that you can hasten the coming of, of Yeshua by living in holiness and godliness. We're going to take seriously what he says here. And it's my earnest hope and prayer to see Tishbav that that day is hastened, that your wilderness exile, that my wilderness exile, which we are patiently enduring, that it does come to an end, and that our temple is established on Zion, that Yeshua HaMashiach returns to rule and reign in Jerusalem, swiftly and soon, even in our days. Shabbat Shalom.